you have your Bibles, why don't you open up with me to, uh, to Matthew chapter 1. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll begin there, but uh, as you're turning there, have you ever, have you ever walked into uh, a room when someone is in the middle of a story? Uh, that they're telling, and uh, and you begin to listen to the story, and, and while you're listening to the middle of the story, you're trying to figure out all of the details that you missed. Uh, you're, you're trying to figure out how the story began, or uh, what, what's being discussed and, and spoken of, uh, and and oftentimes when we when we look at the Christmas story uh, during this season of the year, uh, we come in halfway. Uh, we come in uh, knowing some of the details, and uh, if you've been to church or grown up in the church, you, you may know uh, some, of, some of the background, but as you come to, uh, to Matthew chapter 1 or, or to Luke 2, that, that's not the, the beginning of the Christmas story. Uh, the, the Christmas story doesn't begin uh, with the wise men coming to King Herod uh, and asking to see the child who had been born king. Uh, it doesn't begin with with Mary and Joseph uh, on their way to, to Bethlehem. Uh, it doesn't begin with the angel Gabriel uh, announcing uh, the birth of Jesus to Mary. Uh, see, uh, as, you, as we look at Matthew 1, uh, it's going to, to assume some things and it's going to raise some additional questions. Uh, if, you, if you look with me, uh, beginning in verse 18 in Matthew chapter 1, it says, Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. And if you look especially with me back at verse 21, uh, where uh, the angel Gabriel is giving the details of, uh, of why Jesus shall be called Jesus, and the reason given is that he will save his people from their sins. Well, if you're, if you're a first-time reader of, of Matthew, what are you asking? Well, who are his people? Uh, what is sin? Why do they need to be saved from sin? What, what is the danger uh, that sin presents that they need to be rescued from it? Uh, some, so some basic questions. And, and uh, if, we, if we really want to understand them, we need to go to the beginning of the Christmas story, which is not found in the New Testament, but it's found actually in the first book of the Bible. If you, if you turn with me to, to Genesis chapter 3, that's really where the Christmas story begins. Genesis 1 and 2 record uh, God's creation of the world uh, and his special creation of man and woman on the sixth day. And then Genesis 3, we, we come to what you may see there as uh, a chapter heading in your Bible, the, the fall, or the, the fall of man. 
Uh, and, and this is really where the Christmas story begins because it's going to explain how sin begins uh, and why it is so dangerous, why we need a, a, a rescuer. Uh, and ultimately, as we, as we look at this this morning, as, as we look at uh, sin, as we look at uh, what is known as the curse, uh, I want to look at, at three phases of the curse. Number one, we have uh, the beginning of the curse uh, in, in Adam. Uh, then we're going to see that the promise of a curse breaker uh, who's, who's not going to be identified in the Old Testament. Uh, and then in the New Testament, we'll see uh, the end of the curse in Christ. But first, let's look at how sin and the curse began. Look with me, Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say... You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So here we see Adam and Eve living in paradise, were giving everything that they would ever need by God. But, but Satan was able to, to fix their attention on the one thing God said for them not to do. It's amazing how Satan does that. Uh, and, and he said, hey, look, look at what God is withholding from you. And he made them believe that that one thing that God was withholding was the one thing that could make them happy, that could make them wise, that, that could make them like God. Satan convinced them that, that God was withholding something good from them. And if somebody is holding with something good, then they must not really love you. They must not know what is, is best for you. And in fact, Satan made his own promise to Adam and Eve. He said, hey, if you eat of that fruit, you won't die. You will become like God himself. Well, they ate the fruit, disobeying God, rebelling against what he had told them to do. And they immediately knew experientially good and evil. They knew now what it was like to commit evil, to rebel against a holy God. And you notice that in verse 7, they immediately felt the consequences of sin, the natural consequences of sin. Shame, guilt, separation from one another. And in the verses to follow, we'll see that they immediately felt a separation from God as well. The God who had created them, who had given them life and breath and everything, they were now separated from. Let's continue reading. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? 
Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What what is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The the shame and guilt that they experienced from their sin immediately uh, led them to want to hide from God. They wanted to to hide from the presence of a holy God. And when confronted uh, regarding their sin, because God knew exactly what they had done, uh, they played everyone's favorite blame game. Adam uh, pointed first to God, hey, the woman that you gave to me, uh, and then he pointed to the woman. Uh, She gave me the fruit, and I ate it. And the woman pointed to the serpent, well, he deceived me, and I ate. Uh, See, they, they play this, this blame game, but, but it's a, a very serious action that was committed. And from this singular action, from this, this small action of eating a piece of fruit, it's going to be some, some tremendous ramifications, not only for Adam and Eve, but for the rest of humanity uh, and the entire created order. Look with me beginning in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. See, with some events it takes time to to understand the consequences and ramifications in their totality. Uh, there are some singular events in, in history that completely change the world. Take, for instance, uh, June 28, 1914, uh, when the heir of the, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, uh, Archduke Franz Ferdinand, and his wife Sophie uh, were shot and killed in, in Sarajevo uh, by a young Bosnian national named uh, Gavrilo Princip. Uh, the, the Austro-Hungarian Empire had recently annexed uh, Bosnia-Herzegovina, uh, and the, uh, the assassination of the Archduke was seen as an act of rebellion by this young Bosnian who shot and killed the heir to the throne. He had a desire to strike out against the, the empire who had taken control of his people. And this assassination set off a chain of events that would, that would bring most of Europe and much of the world into a conflict known as the Great War then, and what we now know as World War I. And the consequences of that small act of rebellion that took place on that day over a hundred years ago become clearer and clearer with time. 
far-reaching uh, effects of, of one person being shot and killed, leading to, to World War I, where uh, upwards of 40 million people died. Uh, and then World War I led to World War II, where additionally uh, millions and millions of people died. That one act of rebellion led to much chaos in Europe. And with time, the consequences of Adam and Eve's rebellion against God in the garden would become increasingly clear. Uh, And as we look at the the consequences of their rebellion, we see that there's never been a more traumatic event upon all of uh, humanity. Uh, There's never been a more serious consequence than what they faced for their rebellion against God. If you look, if you look at verse 17 towards the end of it, where, where God says, cursed is the ground because of you. See, as a result of, of Adam's sin, the entire creation came under the curse. And where they previously, all they needed to do to feed themselves was, was pick fruit off of a tree. Now they would have to to work diligently, and in pain they would eat of the ground for the rest of their lives. Uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, picks up on this same idea in Romans chapter 8, verses 20 through 22, when he says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Paul is saying that the entire world, the entire creation, groans under the weight of the curse that was placed upon it because Adam and Eve's sin. So the entire creation came under the curse because of what Adam did. But additionally... Adam's sin was passed on to every subsequent generation. Uh, Every other person, every other human now suffers because of what Adam did. We are now sinners uh, and we have committed sin. Listen to these verses also from Romans. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of humanity is now under the curse because everyone has sinned. Romans 5.12 says that therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And Romans 5, verses 18 and 19, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, and by one's, one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. See, uh, Adam and Eve's sin in the garden create the problem that Christmas addresses. Adam and Eve's sin, their, their rebellion against God, is why we need a rescuer. What happened in Genesis 3 is why Jesus needs to come in Matthew 1. Uh, and we need to, to understand that. We can't just come in halfway through the story. This curse upon humanity is God's righteous judgment for our rebellion against him. And Jesus is the one who has come to rescue to save his people from their sins Uh, and and the world would be hopeless indeed if if god just left it in that cursed state if genesis 3 was the last chapter in the bible uh, we wouldn't even need to gather here this morning Uh, we, we would just be be hopeless but the reality that also in genesis 3 uh verse 15 
God lays out the promise of a curse breaker. So he, he curses man, he curses the ground. He says, now here are the consequences that you will see and experience for the rest of your life and that all of humanity will experience uh, until the end of the age. But, but God also promises a, a curse breaker, someone who would end the curse. Uh, look with me at verse 15 in Genesis 3. Speaking to, to the serpent... In pronouncing judgment upon him, God says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between her offspring. I'm sorry, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now in these words, God is promising a redeemer. He is promising that a seed of the woman, uh, a descendant of the woman, a, a son that she will bear or is a man, will one day defeat Satan, crushing the head of the serpent and ending the curse. And some of you might object and say, well, Thomas, I see all of that in there. I see that a seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent and that the serpent's going to crush the heel of whoever this person is. Some of you may object and say, I'm reading into it, but... But let's put ourselves in, in Eve's sandals for a second. And yes, she does need sandals because now there's thorns everywhere. Uh, it's a part of the curse, uh, that thorns and thistles. So remember that when you deal with the goat heads in your yard up here uh, in Idaho. Uh, but let's put ourselves in Eve's sandals for a second and understand if, if you're there and God is saying that, that, one, that your son, your, one of your offspring is going to defeat Satan, what are you going to be thinking the first time that you have a son? This is it. He's the one, right? This is going to be the end of the curse. That was long-lived, right? And so look with me at the very next chapter, Genesis 4, verse 1. It says, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And, and our English translations add some words in there because the Hebrew is a little bit difficult to, to make sense of because Eve literally just says, uh, I've gotten a man, the Lord. <laughs> and, and you're like, okay, well, what are we supposed to do with that? And I understand why they've added words because how, how do we make sense of that when she just says, I've gotten a man, and then the Lord. I've gotten a man, Yahweh. Uh, and I think what she's saying is, hey, you, you promised that a man that, that I would bear would crush Satan that would crush the serpent. And look, look what I just gave birth to. I just gave birth to a man. Yahweh, look. Look what you've given to me. And I think she's, she's kind of trying to get his attention, but also thanking God uh, for, for helping bring that about, which is why the English translations have, have added in those, those words. Uh, one commentator says that, that she sees in the birth of this son the commencement of the fulfillment of the promise and thankfully acknowledges the divine help in this display of mercy. Uh, and that it's evident because she uses the name Yahweh, the God of salvation. Uh, and this expectation of a redeemer, so Eve expected a redeemer to come in her line. Uh, turn with me over to, to Genesis chapter 5. Everyone's favorite, a genealogy. We just love looking through all of this. And, and look with me at verse 28. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. That tells us a lot. See, what did Lamech expect? He expected somebody to come and redeem them. 
He expected somebody to come and end the curse. And he wasn't a true prophet here, because what did he expect Noah to do? He says, hey, Noah's going to be the one to rescue us. Noah's going to be the one that God uses to end the curse. He's like, well, Noah's going to do something else with God, but it's not going to be the ending of the curse. And so you see, there is an expectation in the early part of Genesis that goes back to Genesis 3, that there is an expectation of a a redeemer, somebody who is going to come and rescue, someone who is going to defeat Satan, someone who is going to end the curse. If you turn over a couple more pages to Genesis chapter 12, we'll begin to, to see that the whole of the Old Testament begins to, to explain who this redeemer is going to be and what he is going to do. Uh, and it's going to become more and more clear as we find more and more details about this Redeemer. Look with me, Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Well, how how can all of the families of the world be blessed through one man? This is going to be the one that this Redeemer is going to come through. And as, as the Old Testament continues, we're going to see that not only is this promise made to Abraham, but it's also made to his son Isaac. Uh, and to his son, uh, Jacob. And then Jacob's going to have 12 sons. And so now you're like, well, which of these 12 is it going to be? Genesis 49, you see that it's going to be uh, in the tribe of Judah. And as the, as the Old Testament continues, we're going to have more and more details about who Jesus is going to be in the line of and what he is going to come and do. Now turn with me back to Matthew chapter 1. See, now with that backdrop, with that understanding, suddenly... Where Matthew begins is going to make more sense. Because as you look at Matthew chapter 1, what, is, what does Matthew begin with as he's writing to, to Jews and he's, he's trying to help them see and understand and believe that Jesus is this Redeemer that was promised? How does he begin? Everyone's favorite portion of Scripture, everyone's favorite genre, it's most exciting to read, genealogy, Right? Well, genealogy, what, the, what a biblical author is doing is they're using history to make a theological point. Uh, and they're trying to draw a line from one person in the past to another person. Uh, and so this genealogy, how does it begin in verse 1? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So we immediately know Matthew's trying to connect Jesus with who? Two men from the past in the Old Testament, David and Abraham. Abraham, as we just saw, uh, God promised to bless all of the the families of the world through him. And then David is going to be uh, another man who was given covenant promises by God. He's going to be the king in Israel. So if if whoever this redeemer is going to be, if he's supposed to be the king of Israel, he has to be in whose line? David's. Uh, And those are those are important details. Now, now we don't typically think about genealogies in our modern day. Right. Genealogies are, are kind of a thing of the past. We, we can look at our, our family's past if we're somewhat interested, but, but genealogies really used to matter. Now take, for instance, uh, a couple hundred years ago, uh, in, in 
Europe, uh, a book called the, the Almanac de Gotha was for nearly 200 years Europe's most authoritative genealogical guide. So it was first published in 1763, and it names uh, Europe's noble families in three categories. Uh, three lists in this book. Uh, number one was the sovereign houses of Europe. The royal families were listed. Secondly, because it was a German book, uh, they listed the German nobility. And then third, they listed selected nobility of other European countries. So on the, they had these three lists of nobles, and every year another edition of the Almanac was, was published to record the births, deaths, marriages, and, and the titles of Europe's noble families. And here's why it was important. So throughout the 19th century, whatever category and list you were in, you had to marry on that same list to maintain your status. So basically, this book of genealogies became the final authority on who could marry who. Right? You're like, man, I wish things were... No, nobody wishes things were still that way. Uh, but, but that reality of genealogies were so important in the past because it established who people were and, and a certain status. And that's what, that's what Matthew wants us to see here in Matthew chapter 1. Uh, Matthew begins with, with who Jesus is. He's in the line of David. And then as we saw, let's look back again at Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. He makes it clear what Jesus is coming to do. That he is named Jesus, uh, or in the Old Testament it would have been Joshua or Yeshua. His name, Jesus, literally means Yahweh saves. And that's why he's named Jesus, because he is coming to save his people from their sins. So, so we've seen that the need for, for Jesus to save and that, that need was established and began in the Garden of Eden. And we see that Jesus is the one who is coming to save. But how is he going to do that? How is he going to rescue his people? How is he going to save them from their sin? Well, as you, again, yeah, I know we're, we're bouncing around a lot. But, but turn with me to, to the book of Galatians. Just a, a couple of books uh, to the right in your New Testament we will see that Jesus is coming to end the curse, to pay sin's penalty. And he is going to do that by becoming a curse himself on our behalf. Look with me at Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. See, this is the, the good news of Jesus Christ, that he came to, to redeem us, but, but if we're going to understand the good news, what do we first have to understand? 
the bad news. We first have to understand why are we in need of a rescuer? Why are we in need of someone to, to save us? And this passage says that all who are under the law are cursed. Every person is under the law. Every person uh, is condemned by the law. And what the law is, is trying to earn your salvation. Trying to earn your way into heaven, trying to work your way out from underneath the curse. Trying to, in your own good works, pay for what you cannot possibly pay. But what we could not do ourselves, Jesus came and did for us. And he redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse himself, by, by bearing our curse. And he himself became a curse because the Old Testament said that everyone who is hanged on a tree is looked upon as being what? Accursed. That the curse is, is upon them. And so as we, as we think about that during this, this Christmas time, that, that the Son of God, the one who created us, who gave us life and breath and everything, we've seen that as we've, as we've, as we've been studying Colossians 1, as we've been studying the book of Colossians, we see that Christ is the creator and sustainer of everything. This is the one who humbled himself, the Son of God, becoming a man and dwelt among men living a sinless life and then dying on the cross to bear our sin, bearing our curse, dying the death that we should have died, experiencing the wrath that we deserved. Isaiah 53 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. See, Christ died on the cross as our substitute. And on the third day, he rose again, showing that, that God accepted that substitute. He rose victoriously from the grave, showing that he conquered sin and that he conquered death. And Jesus is that substitute for everyone who believes in him. When we trust in Jesus rather than trusting in ourselves, we, we say, hey, I know I have a sin problem. I see that I am under the curse, that I have rebelled against God in the same way that Adam has that creates a problem in our lives. It creates a crisis. Uh, and if uh, the solution to that crisis is, well, I will, I will work harder. I will try and get my way into heaven by, by doing good deeds, by, by having my good deeds they outweigh my bad deeds. Uh, if, if we're going to try and do it that way, we are doomed. As we see here in Galatians, everyone who tries to, to work uh, through the law and to keep the law to save themselves is under another curse additionally. But when you turn away from your own good works and say, I, there's no chance of me earning my salvation. I can only trust in Christ, who already paid the price that I owe to God. That's when Jesus becomes our substitute. And if you're here this morning and you haven't trusted in Christ, now if you're still on that hamster wheel trying to save yourself, 
I would beg of you, look to Christ in faith. Don't, don't continue to try and earn your way to heaven through good works. Look to Christ in faith. Look to him for what he has already done. He's already borne the curse. He's already died the death that you deserve and faced the wrath of God on your behalf. And now we are called to look to him in faith. And as we celebrate this, this time of year, as we celebrate Christmas, we are celebrating the incarnation of Jesus. We are celebrating God becoming a man, humbling himself. God humbled himself just to the point of becoming a man. When you are limitless God and you become man, you are naturally uh, lowering yourself. But, but Philippians 2 says Jesus didn't just do that, but he humbled himself to the point of death. And the most humiliating death one could experience, death on a cross. God, the highest of high, made himself the lowest of low so that we could be saved, so that we could be rescued. That's how Jesus came to save his people from their sins. And we cannot celebrate what took place in Bethlehem without grieving over what took place in the Garden of Eden. We cannot truly understand and appreciate what takes place in Bethlehem without also thanking and praising Jesus for what he will endure on the cross of Calvary. So we have to see all of those together because we appreciate what he came to do and we appreciate what he did on the cross when we understand the severity of our sin from Genesis 3. And while Jesus conquered sin and death at his first coming, the curse of sin still stains everyone and everything. So we must look to his second coming uh, when, when he returns. Because when he ascended into heaven in Acts chapter 1, the angel said, as you saw him go, he will one day come back. And when Jesus returns the second time, that is when he will put an end to the curse completely. Listen to Revelation 21 verse 4 says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Now, usually the, the most popular uh, Christmas song uh, and the most well-known Christmas carol uh, is usually Joy to the World. It's a, it's a very familiar song. But it's a song that was not intended to be about Christmas. Did you know that? See, uh, the lyrics of this song, written by Isaac Watts in 1719, are based upon the lyrics of Psalm 98. And Psalm 98 is all about the earth rejoicing when its creator comes to rule and judge. Listen to the lyrics. Uh, and they are, they are certainly true of the first coming of Christ, joy to the world, the Lord has come, let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. And we have to say amen to that. Let every heart prepare room for the king who was born in Bethlehem. But the song is really about the second coming of Christ. Not when he comes in a manger, but when he comes in glory to put an end to sin, to put an end to the curse. This becomes obvious in verse 3 where it says, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. See, the, re the reversal of the curse 
is going to take place at the second coming of Christ. And, and in, in this church age, we live, we live in between the first and second comings, which means that we are called to do two things. We look back in history to when Jesus was born, to when he lived a perfect life, died on the cross on our behalf, when he was resurrected and then ascended into heaven. And now we are looking forward to the future when he returns. We live in light of those two realities that we are called to look forward and backwards, uh, anticipating his return and savoring that time when Jesus will truly put an end to sin and the curse. He's rescued us from the consequences of sin. Uh, He's saved us from the wrath of God. But, but we still live in sin. We still live lives that are, that are tainted by the curse, do we not? Uh, we still live in, in difficult times. And I know even these holiday season, this holiday season can be a difficult time. Uh, it, it's a time when we, when we look forward to Christ's return. Uh, and as we have the opportunity to, to sing together again this morning to close out our service, may we celebrate both the birth of our Savior in Bethlehem Uh, and his future return. Let's praise him. Gracious God, Lord, we thank you, we praise you for the promise of a redeemer, the promise of a rescuer. Lord, you, you rightly cursed us. You rightly allowed us to face the consequences of our rebellion against you. Because you are a righteous judge and a holy God, You require that of us. But, Lord, you also knew that we would never be able to save ourselves, that we would never be able to rescue us ourselves. So you promised a Redeemer. You promised someone to end the curse, to crush the serpent. And, Lord, we thank you for your Son, ultimately the one who is our Redeemer, who is our Rescuer. Lord, we long to celebrate his birth. We long to understand the sin that separates us from you. We long to to grow in our understanding of what he did on our behalf on the cross. And Lord, right now we, we want to worship and praise him. To echo to one another and to you that we long for him to return. We long for him to to put an end to sin and suffering. We, We long to be comforted by him. We want him to wipe away every tear from our eyes. We want death to be completely destroyed. And we want to worship him, our Savior, face to face. Lord, I pray now that our our singing, our worship, our celebration of the birth of your son Jesus Christ tomorrow morning with our families would be a time of worship we be a time where you are exalted above everything and everyone. And we pray this in your precious and holy name, Jesus.